Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by HMC Capital. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with David DePilla, Managing Director and Group Chief Executive of HMC Capital. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. David, you're one of the founders of HMC Capital. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, You've worked at UBS before as as an investment banker. How did you get involved with HMC Capital? I had a long career in investment banking at UBS. And back in 2016, 17, I put a consortium of private investors together to acquire a property portfolio that came out of uh, the failed master's home improvement uh, business that was put together by uh, Woolworths. What we spotted at the time was a very unique opportunity with some of the best real estate in Australia and some of the best growth corridors of Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth. Um, and we acquired that portfolio at you know a very attractive entry level. Went about a process of repurposing and repositioning the real estate into what we called our daily needs strategy, which today is built into a, a $5 billion listed REIT. Um, and so that that ultimately resulted in uh, the creation of HMC through a group of private in- individuals. Yeah, so that's interesting. Why did uh, did it not work for Woolworths? Oh, that was an operating business. That, you know what they did. The operating business was basically a challenger to Bunnings at the time. It was um, a structurally very competitive market. And probably there wasn't room for a second major player in that retail space. But the one thing they did incredibly well was they put a great portfolio of real estate together, which we identified, we picked up at an attractive valuation, and we rebirthed as HomeCo Daily Needs. And obviously, it's been a, a great success story over the last five years, ever since we created that that entity. So as a real estate play, it was great real estate. So that was the start of uh, HMC Capital, um, but it was also at a sort of a tricky time. I think the initial process started in 2016-17, but then the company listed in 2019. And of course, since then, we had like a global pandemic, COVID hit, we had interest rates go up. What sort of challenges did that provide uh, to growing the business? Well, I think initially in 16-17, 18, when we, cre- when we were setting up HomeCo up, a fairly challenging time in the market. Capital was hard to find in Australia. Um, there was also a lot of consolidation going on in the in the retail industry. 
So um, we'd cut a lot of deals with various retailers to come into our real estate um, because of that consolidation. And uh, there was a couple of couple of major retailers went broke in Australia, so we lost some tenants there. So as a result of that, we had some, you know, some some early challenges in terms of uh, creating the the portfolio on the platform. But we overcame those because of the quality of the real estate, the quality of the strategy, the convenience based na- based nature of it. So we got it up and running, listed in 2019. Then we had this uh, this little thing called COVID 19 come along in 2020. That really knocked uh, real estate landlords around, particularly if you were just a, a very early stage business in the early stages of your development. You know, we didn't have a lot of fat in the structure at the time, but we were able to absorb it, re-adapt, reposition. Um, we reframed our narrative, um, went down the path of creating um, REITs, listed REITs, using the cost of capital through that, releasing capital back and uh, created the management company that we have today. Yeah, and I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to adapt and we were very nimble, fleet-footed and adapted to market circumstances pretty well. Yeah. So the the company today, uh, it invests in a number of different types of assets. So we, we touched upon real estate, but you're also active in, in private equity and even in listed securities. What is sort of the overarching philosophy, investment philosophy that ties it all together? Look, it's a very simple philosophy where really looking for high quality opportunities with structural megatrends underpinning them. Um, We like real assets. We like fundamental high quality businesses that we can own forever. Now, whether that be through our private equity strategy where we're buying stakes in listed entities, we're looking for listed entities with basic fundamentals and drivers around barriers to entry, great quality customers, underlying growth drivers. So businesses that we're prepared to own forever overlay on that the fact that we we do like real assets we've, we've built a bit of expertise there but i i've always been a great believer in structural mega trends and growth drivers if you have an unanticipated event in your business if something goes wrong and you've got fundamentally growing businesses and fundamentally growing cash flows that will always stand you in good stead when you get an unanticipated event like COVID, when you get 13 straight interest rate rises. If you've got a growing business with underlying megatrends, you will generally be able to get through that, that unanticipated event. And it's the same for real estate. We've picked sectors that have got fundamental growth drivers rather than sectors that have got structural headwinds. What are some of these uh, mega trends? What are some of these drivers that you uh, invest in? The two we've focused on in the in the real estate space have been built around um, the daily needs space. We think COVID-19 has really changed the way um, people behave, the way people go about their daily life. That migration every day, Monday to Friday, uh, from the burbs into the city, it's probably reduced a bit. So people are staying closer to home. People are not making that, that migration every day. They might do it four days a week, three days a week. They might do it for reduced hours. So as a result, um, the assets that we have built our daily needs strategy around out in the suburbs of Australia, um, in the growth corridors of the major capital cities have really flourished as a result of that. And we believe that becomes an increasing mega trend as these cities intensify. Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, globally important, globally relevant cities. Melbourne and Sydney would be the fourth and fifth biggest city in the US if if you were to overlay them on a map of America. Yeah, so right. as the population in Australia continues to grow over the next decade, 
the value of our real estate will continue to grow, the need for it to be used as part of the last mile logistics for, for B2C customer delivery will increase, the rents will increase, and the value of the real estate will continue to go up. So that's one mega trend we've really identified. The other is clearly healthcare. We like that as a thematic, just the sheer drivers around um, population growth in Australia, half a million net immigrants next year, add on top of that an ageing population, add on top of that medical advancement and increased medical intervention, add on top of that the fact that you know increasing knowledge and um, understanding around wellness. So the demand for healthcare real estate we think is just a significant structural megatrend and we want more exposure to it. Importantly, there are very few specialists in this space in Australia or globally to get exposure to high quality portfolios. We've identified that as an opportunity in the market and we're really putting you know, a major a major emphasis around that in our business and our future growth. So daily needs, is that things like groceries or what does that include? Yeah, it can be groceries, it can be a medical centre, it can be a pharmacy, it can be a childcare centre, it can be a gym. It can be um, anything that you need to go and visit on a regular basis. You may not go there every day, but you maybe have multiple visitations a week. Our daily needs strategy at HomeCo Daily Needs Rate, which we have AS, which is also ASX listed, I think um, over the course of this year there'll be 80 million visitations to our assets over the course of this year, which is which is good for something that five years ago was just basically an idea. Yeah, yeah. So is this linked to this uh, concept of the 15-minute city where everything is close by? Is that sort of the type of businesses? Exactly. We didn't come up with that concept. We we built our strategy years ago, but we believe in that sort of concept. We believe in consumer um, choice. We believe in consumers being um, wanting instant uh, service, instant gratification. If I want to buy something, I want to try and get it delivered this afternoon. I want it delivered within a half-hour window. I want to know that if I'm at home, it'll it'll arrive on time. The only way to get to that place is using bricks and mortar real estate that is located close to where people live. So we believe we we touch something like 15 million Australians within a 10 to 15 minute drive of our of our portfolio of daily needs assets. So we think we're very well placed. Related to that concept uh, is is also this idea of the the last mile logistics. Now that came up very strongly during all the lockdowns when people really were reliant on on that. Is this still a strong enough trend to to sort of uh, have future growth in it? Oh, massive amount of growth. It's only just starting. And um, what we talk about is the fact that logistics real estate has become pretty on trend and very hot over the last few years cap rates and returns have been bid down to very very low levels um, so con- so investors are really seeking exposure to that because of the underlying mega trend because of e-commerce and because of a lot of those factors what we believe is that is very hotly contested and very tightly bid that's b2b logistics what we're focusing on is business to consumer logistics, which is really a sector that has not at any way been sort of institutionalized yet. There's very little focus on it. We see massive opportunity for significant tightening in cap rates and asset values to re-rate quite materially over the coming years. We've been a first mover in that space. We, we've now got a very significant portfolio. We've got a very clear focus around it. We've got real alignment and partnership with major retailers in Australia. So we think... Um, uh, the future and the outlook for that is very, very bright. 
is there a certain element of geography to it in the sense that, you know, you look at Sydney and it has all the inlets of the rivers. Does that make it harder to sort of place these type of real estates closer to oh, urban centres? That would be one way of explaining it. The way we would explain it would just be the sheer size and scale of the, the metro area in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, particularly Sydney, where geographically you've got um, – a very a very dense urban population. Um, if you live in if you live in the western suburbs of Sydney, and you're now spending well over an hour of commute into the CBD of Sydney every day. Um, if you live in say the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, you're spending an hour and a half commuting to the city every day. So the reality is, if you've got uh, the option to work from home, if you've got the option to stay closer to home, and these cities are getting harder and harder to move around. Uh, B to C, last mile logistics is the way of the future. It is not possible to be delivering products out of central one central warehouse in Sydney or Melbourne to consumers in any kind of rapid time frame. So we believe we've, we've identified a mega trend. We think it's one that's really on point and we think it's one that's going to flourish over the next few years. The other mega trend you, you mentioned was around healthcare and the, and the life sciences. And I believe also this is the area where you have some of your institutional uh, clients involved, uh, which particularly centered around sort of portfolio of health scope hospitals. How, how did you get the institutional involvement uh, involved in, in this case? Look, healthcare is clearly a sector that I've touched on many times in recent um, presentations that we've given and to the market that has a structural megatrend underpinning it. The characteristics and fundamentals of the asset class are compelling. Population growth, ageing population, increased medical advancements and medical intervention and increased focus by people um, on their wellness as a result of that megatrend um, having exposure to healthcare real estate is something that most institutional investors, when you go and present to them, give you a big tick around. The hard bit is how do I get exposure to a portfolio of a healthcare real estate assets at the right price? That becomes quite challenging. Easy to say, easy to come up with the thesis, very difficult to deploy and provide investment opportunities around it. So earlier this year, um, the, this HealthScope portfolio of assets uh, came to the market and we put uh, an offer to the vendor, um, which is a US-based property REIT. Uh, we acquired the assets uh, on very attractive terms. As a result of that, we then had the seed basis for a very high-quality portfolio of assets to seed an unlisted institutional REIT. Um, we're in the process over the course of uh, the next few weeks um, through the back end of September 2023 and early early uh, October 23, um, in closing an institutional fund, a billion dollar fund, seated with those assets. Um, there'll be investors both domestically here in Australia and globally. So you'll have um, a global sovereign wealth fund investing in that. You'll have um, a, a global multinational corporates pension fund. A couple of multi-managers will be involved, global multi-managers and a domestic Aussie super fund. So the reason they've all invested is because, one, they like the mega trend and the thematic around real estate, health, healthcare real estate, but they also 
like the seed assets going in and the fact that we're able to put a high-quality portfolio of assets together in at the right price and an attractive valuation. Another a big mega trend, of course, is, is, is climate change. And um, related to that is the energy transition where we move to more sustainable forms of energy uh, generation. And I think you're also playing into uh, that theme with um, looking at basically opportunities that companies that benefit from the energy transition. To a degree, it's also a bit of a story of, of still technologies that have to be developed and innovated. Is there enough breadth to invest uh, on, on, on those winners of the energy transition? I think energy transition is um, a bit of a catch-all. It's something that now, with the commitments that Australia has made to zero net carbon over the next decade, uh, and a lot of capital has got to flow into that that sector, a lot of um, resources and a lot of effort and a lot of energy have got to go into those areas. You can play energy transition in many ways. You can play it through investing in assets. You can play it through technology and technological advancements. Um, at this stage, technology um, is really more around, built around assets. It's more um, things that we can really see and feel and touch. It's, it's things like um, investing in wind farms. It's investing in battery storage. It's investing in in solar. Over time, as that technology changes and improves, the um, types of investments that we'll be looking to make will change and evolve. At this stage, what we're looking to do is we're looking to play that that space in many and varied ways. You know, it's still very early days for us, but as a landlord and as a real estate owner, we've got an immediate need for. Um, energy transition um, credits. So as a result of that, we're really thinking about how we can basically work with investors to bring some of our our own demand together with some of the mega trend opportunity there and potentially we'll be looking to launch a fund around that later this year or early next year. So it's very early days at this stage for us. It's, it's, it's an area we've identified, it's an area we want to move into, but at this stage, um, it's something that we'll we'll look to uh, put more detail around later this year, early next year. You also um, are active in the listed space, yeah, and you bring a bit of a private equity approach to the listed space. So, can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Uh, I think you described it as target undervaluated cam- uh, companies that are rich in assets, but what is sort of the catalyst there to to, to make them grow? About twelve months ago, we launched um, HMC Capital Partners, which um, is an entity that we established to take high conviction strategic stakes in listed entities. We're looking for um, listed companies with um, net asset back with asset backing, where we can get investment exposure at or around uh, asset backing. So we we obviously look for opportunity asset rich companies where we believe they're trading for whatever reason uh, at or around their asset backing. So we're, so we're looking for opportunities where if we get the investment thesis right the upside can be quite asymmetrical. Um, We're looking for uh, businesses that are high quality businesses that we're prepared to own for a long period of time where they've got barriers to entry, um, they're they're businesses with pricing power and ultimately underlying growth fundamentals. But again, asset backing is important to us when we look at these investment opportunities. So with that starting point, we've identified a number of um, these opportunities. We've taken... uh, a 19% stake in a listed entity called Sigma Healthcare. We've taken 4% of Lendlease and we've got some other unidentified investments at this point that we've got 
that fit our investment thesis that we believe are trading below fundamental value and we believe will deliver our investors some very attractive returns over the, the coming years. Yeah. So you got listed assets, you got private equity assets, you got uh, REITs, you got unlisted property. Are you relatively agnostic to whether it's uh, a public market asset or a private asset? Look, I think the ability when you're when you're an alternative asset manager to be able to span both listed and unlisted markets is really important. Um, what I would say is, from a from a market point of view, the listed market generally at any moment in time is trying to price a series of future cash flows in regard to a, a public stock or a bond, for that matter. Um, so you're getting real time pricing, and you're getting um, a a point in time view on future cash flows. As a result, the listed market can sometimes over and undershoot, um, whilst over the long term, the market will always be rational and always revert to its long run pricing. In the short term, you can sometimes get moments of, of mispricing. We believe that exists at the moment with the current um, rate hiking cycle. We think that listed real asset based companies have probably been oversold because of a, a, a view as to where the peak rate cycle will be. We believe we've, we're close to now the peak, peak rate cycle. So we think over the next six to 12 months, real asset focused businesses with interest rate, more interest rate sensitive cash flows like REITs, real asset companies with infrastructure like characteristics, will I actually outperform the market over the next couple of years? And that's why we've focused a lot of our investment thesis and a lot of our attention into that space. So we think that that um, is one way to play it. The other way to think about it is there are other times in the market where the pricing power and the cost of capital in the listed space can actually be very strong. And so to have that kind of currency to take advantage of those opportunities is also important. So at the moment, we're probably a buyer of listed uh, real assets. Um, at other points in time, we might be a seller of of those opportunities. Now, there's a lot of attention as well by the regulator on on the valuation uh, frequency of unlisted assets, uh, partly uh, stemming from the the pandemic when uh, some of these assets potentially uh, could have been mispriced. Do you have any sort of strong views on on uh, frequency of valuating unlisted assets? Look, I think. As I said earlier, um, the listed market gives you a point in time view on valuation. The unlisted market, most unlisted investors, whether it be an institution or other unlisted syndicate type investors, will revalue their assets on a regular basis. It might be every 12 months, for example. What they'll do is they'll go to an independent value and they'll get a confirmation of the underlying value of that asset. A valuer, however, can only give you a value based on market evidence and data that they can observe. If there hasn't been a lot of market evidence or the market's taking time to catch up or because of the dislocation over the last couple of years around interest rates moving up, um, sellers have not been selling as actively, the evidence will not be there. And therefore, there will be a lag in terms of the catch up in terms of where those unlisted assets will be held. So that obviously means that you can criticise that but it's just a function of the market. It's a function of the investment environment. And what you really need is you need managers and investment professionals that can look through all of that, look at what the listed market's doing, look at what that's telling you, look at the lag effects that can sometimes take place in the unlisted market. We like all that market dislocation because it actually gives us lots of data, lots of information. And because we're flexible between both markets, we've got both institutional unlisted mandates, we've got listed rates, 
we think there's an opportunity to create value and arbitrage those two market opportunities at various points in the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your plans for for future growth? Uh, I, I believe the company has a, a target uh, to reach at least uh, $20 billion in assets under management. What is sort of the time frame that you're looking at? We um, we listed HMC back in October 2019. Um, the group at the time had about $800 million of assets. We've grown nearly tenfold since that time, over just over three years, from $800 million to $8 billion today. Um, we believe that if we focus on structural megatrends and if we focus on sectors that have got underlying growth drivers, but we also provide great returns for our investors and keep delivering for our investors, we'll naturally organically be able to maintain the growth trajectory that we've been on. But we don't take that lightly. We don't throw numbers out lightly. What we believe is if we if we do a good job, uh, if we're good custodians of capital, capital will find us and we'll be able to continue that growth momentum beyond the sort of eight to $10 billion as to where we're at today at the end of uh, 2023, where we are now. Um, so yeah, you know, we're not really putting any any kind of cap or ceiling on on our view. We just need to do a good job and, and the capital will find us. Yeah, fair enough. And are you any uh, are you eyeing any new strategies? Um, I, I could, for instance, think of uh, the, the popularity at the moment around residential uh, uh, property. Um, you do a lot of property investing. Is that something that you would consider? Look, the, the areas that we're sort of focused on as a business are around one of the areas that we talked about a little earlier and we've flagged to the market is we will look to launch something around energy transition. So we'll look to, to bring a, a fund to market um, later this year, early next year. We're looking at debt, real estate debt exposure. Um, again, we just think it's probably the wrong point in the cycle to be um, launching something around that space. We think that um, there could be some pain to come there. A lot of loans written over the last few years in a, in a fairly um, benign interest rate environment that once refinancing starts to happen and some valuation softening in real assets starts to kick in, there could be some real pain there in some of the loan books around the market. So we're just watching that very carefully and looking for a moment in time to play there. Um, other areas we, we sort of think about are, yeah, adjacencies to um, real assets and some of the other businesses we're in. Residential, yeah, probably not going to go and play standard residential assets, but we have identified some other pockets of that market exposed to that subsector um, that we think could present some some attractive opportunities. So areas like uh, build to rent uh, could could have some interest for us over time, or even manufactured housing and other sub pockets of that of that thematic where we think there could be some interesting value in the future. To what degree does the investment environment uh, come into play as well when you sort of look at, at future growth? I mean, there's still relatively high inflation. Um, are you worried about that going forward? Absolutely. Every time we deploy a dollar, we, we put forensic thought into the market outlook and, and where um, we think the market's going, where we think we're at in the rate cycle. What We, we obviously then overlay the macro onto the onto the individual investment um, thematic that we're undertaking and the individual opportunity. So we do bottom up in terms of the opportunity, but we do a lot of thinking around the the macro and overlay those two things together before we deploy any marginal dollar in the group. I think we're pretty proud of the fact that we do a lot of um, a lot of internal questioning and a lot of debate and a lot of discussion goes into 
um, any new thematic or any new product we launch. And then once we've launched it, any underlying investment we make, we put a lot of scrutiny into it. So importantly, we um, we do put a lot of thought and a lot of store into that. Where do I think we're sitting at the moment? Uh, we're clearly um, through peak rates. We're through we're through um, peak inflation, in my view. We're on the the downside of that that mountain at the moment. But the question is really more one around how much longer is there to go um, in terms of this elevated interest rate um, environment now. You know, I, I think you're going to see interest rates remaining at the current levels for um, very much the best part of 24. You might, you know, who knows when that when that easing starts. I can't predict that. I don't think anyone can predict that. Um, but what you can do is you can you can obviously have a view and then you can set your investment strategy around that view. And that's what we like to do. We like to form a view internally. We like to take a view and then we like to act on that view. Now, of course, uh, a lot of the asset owners are also uh, uh, very focused on sort of the ESG credentials and the net zero journey is a big part of that. I, I saw some uh, information uh, from, from your company that, that thinks that maybe HMC Capital can already reach net zero by 2028. Um, is that right? Um, our, t- our real estate strategies, yes. We, In regard to our daily needs rate, um, and our healthcare REIT, we've come out and said we're, we're aiming to be zero net carbon by 2028. 20, um, we're undertaking a lot of internal initiatives around um, getting our scope one and scope two emissions down, and we're on a trajectory to achieve that internally with just some some very smart um, technologies. Um, so we're, we're putting um, energy management systems in across all our assets where putting solar in across our assets. We've got very environmentally um, friendly buildings in that we're um, you know, very efficient around capturing rainwater and those sorts of things. So th- there's, there's a lot of base initiatives um, across the business. Those energy um, savings that we put into our underlying real estate get us so far down the track. They don't get us all the way to zero net um, in terms of our emissions. But what we're then looking to do is, through other initiatives that we've got underway, really looking to abate the balance of any emissions um, through assets that we either invest in or manage over time. So we're we're pretty focused on that. We haven't really announced uh, what we're planning to do there, but we've got some some interesting initiatives there, and we've got some pretty ambitious targets. And uh, yeah, we're going to work. We're working pretty hard toward them. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, David, thank you very much for your time. Great. It was good talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.